They saw her as the true progressive in the race and said, you know what? Yes, I can and will vote for a, a black progressive woman. And we did see that with um, Cori Bush as well. But again, that was an instance where you had two African-Americans running against each other. We knew that the city would vote for a progressive woman. The question was, how much did race play a factor? I'm Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air. St. Louis elected a new mayor last night. Tashara Jones bested Alderwoman Kara Spencer by just over 2,200 votes. That's according to last night's final unofficial results. Jones becomes the first black woman elected to the position in the city's history. As she noted in her victory speech last night, she came achingly close to notching that historic first four years ago. We are done ignoring the racism that has held our city and our region back. I made the same case four years ago and came up short, but I made peace with the fact that I would rather lose another election again than stop having the tough conversations in every corner of our city. And that is Mayor-elect Tashara Jones. And joining us now with some analysis is St. Louis Public Radio reporter Rachel Lipman. Rachel, welcome. Sarah, it's always good to be here. So, Rachel, Tashara Jones fell just shy of victory four years ago. What do you think made this year different? I think it's that she finally got the one-on-one shot that she thought she would be successful at if she had had a chance to go one-on-one four years ago. You have to remember that four years ago was what we knew as the traditional St. Louis, you know, free-for-all in the Democratic primary. You could eke out a vote with a very narrow uh, coalition in the city and then cruise in the general election. Well, this year it's a nonpartisan primary where everyone threw in as independent candidates and the top two advanced to the general election. So she got a one-on-one shot with with, you know, what ended up being Alderwoman Spencer, but it would have been a head-to-head match regardless, and that just shakes out better for some candidates. So this was our first nonpartisan mayoral election, at least in quite some time. Correct, uh, yes. Did that have any impact on things? You know, I don't think so. Um, you know, we saw the nominal Republican candidate, Andrew Jones, not advance beyond the primary election. So, you know, no, I don't think it really makes a difference. Most people, I don't think, really consider party labels much in the city. There are some people who like the idea of having a D next to their name. They believe that being a member of the Democratic Party really does mean something. But when it comes down to it, it, you're really voting. It it turns into nonpartisan anyway, in a sense, because the Democratic Party is so dominant in the city that it really has always been on, you know, nuanced differences in policy in the primary election, which was more like the general election. Hmm. Now, there were some bad polls on this race, but there was a poll that came out about a week ago. This is from Show Me Victories, and it had Jones up 42% to 37% with 21% undecided. Do you think those undecideds just chose to sit this one out? That's pretty close to her ultimate margin of victory there. Or they made sort of the, the final decision in the ballot box. They just really weren't sure and were waiting. There's, you know, a lot of reasons why people may not have liked either of these candidates, didn't want to say that they were, you know, had had made a decision one way or the other. But I think a lot of people were really, truly undecided in in this race. Um, You know, the fact that it turned out to be pretty close to that margin of victory isn't that surprising. And if you look at turnout, you know, it wasn't 
I thought it would be a little higher because the general election was decisive this time around. But if you look at previous general elections in the city, April elections, it really wasn't that far off the norm. It was about 29 percent. 29 percent. So not bad by St. Louis standards, but certainly nothing to boast about here either. And and certainly, again, not what you would expect for a decisive mayoral election, Um, whether that was just because people didn't realize that you know, it was this decisive an election. And maybe in 2025, when uh, the the mayor's office is up, the next time you'll see that number go up as people have adjusted to this approval voting system. So unsurprisingly, Tashara Jones did really well in North City. Um, She won 70 percent plus in many wards there. And Kara Spencer picked up 70 percent plus in some of the southwest city wards that tend to be kind of pro-law enforcement, a little bit skeptical of, of what they see as as Tashara Jones' um, agenda there. Do you think the city is still more divided by race than the election of a black female mayor would suggest on its face? I think so, yes. Um, You know, and I I did an interesting little kind of just comparison, just kind of for my own interest, is I looked at the Bush Clay results in the city of St. Louis. Now, this is a little bit different in that you had two uh, African-American, two black individuals running against each other. And we knew that the city would vote for a progressive woman. The question was, how much did race play a factor? And in... um, some of those those wards, for example, 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, 16th, 23rd wards, uh, the, the third candidate in that Democratic primary who really ran no campaign picked up over 10 percent of the vote. In one ward, she got 16 percent. And I'm pretty sure she was the only white candidate in that race. Hmm. So with no real campaigning, there was this instinct to just say, I'm going to vote for a white person in the race. And, you know, I think it's maybe the first time that a mayor has been elected with significant North side support in a long period of time, but it still indicates that, yes, the city is incredibly divided still on race. And you saw that in the primary as well. Some of those south side wards, you thought instinctively, I thought that it probably would have broken for Lewis Reed, just in terms of those are police officer, firefighter wards, candidates who have traditionally or uh, support blocks that have traditionally, you would think, broken for Reed. They and endorsed Spencer. him. And they, yet- uh, well, firefighters stayed out of the primary election. I don't think they, they got in in the primary, but they had been a backer of Reed in the past. Um, and and yet Spencer prevailed in some of those wards. Now, Reed came in second, but Spencer still prevailed. So Jones, her path to victory, in addition to doing so well in North City, um, she did win some of these um, majority white wards there in the Central Corridor. And she also won a swath of South City. What do you think made her the candidate? That was, you know, if you look at, okay, Kara Spencer gets the Southwest, Jones gets the North. This, these are the deciding wards right there. That was what I was really interested to see is what happened kind of in, I call them the park wards or the wards that are kind of centered around Tower Grove Park or associated with Tower Grove Park. So you're looking at 6th, 8th, 9th, 15th, um, uh, kind of those wards over there, South Central St. Louis. I would be, I was curious to see, because both candidates did well there in the um uh, in the primary, and and a lot of people took advantage of approval voting too, and, and I voted was, for both, and voted for both, correct. And I was very curious to see how those wards would break, to see how much of sort of a, a racist undertone there was in in some of their support for both of as well. If I have to choose, because you know we all know and are familiar with white progressives who still haven't totally interrogated racist bias that they might have. So that was interesting to me. Is that it's it came down to perhaps 
policy. They saw her as the true progressive in the race, someone who had been speaking and saying these these language in these platforms and said, you know what? Yes, I can and will vote for a, a black progressive woman. And we did see that with um Cory Bush as well. But again, that was an instance where you had two African-Americans running against each other. So as we mentioned, Tashara Jones nearly won this four years ago. She came within fewer than 900 votes. 888 votes. Yeah, I mean, this was a close race. And Kara Spencer was obviously much less well-known coming into this. Uh, she had never uh, run for citywide office. She just, you know, had run in her one small ward there in South City. Do you think there's anything she could have done differently that would have gotten her over the top here? You know, I don't know because it's it's hard to say what they were do you know what they were doing internally what the the campaign message really was. I think ultimately what it came down to was um, she was campaigning for fourteen fifteen months. I think by the time all was said and done, so she had the opportunity to go make her name. Now, obviously, a pandemic campaigning during that is much different than being able to to get out there and knock doors and really introduce yourselves to people. But I think it was ultimately you had individuals within the progressive movement who maybe didn't quite trust that she was the person. And there may have been some of those in southwest St. Louis who and that's an area of the city that we know will vote against rather than for mm-hmm. who, you know, and, and to say that she could have turned out the southwest side doesn't help kind of that standing of I'm going to be a progressive individual. So, you know, I don't know. I mm. don't know if there is something that, you know, Spencer could have done in her campaign that would have changed um, the results because she ran for, for 15 months. Mm-hmm. And she certainly made up a lot of ground from going from being to unknown to being the, the second person standing. But of course, you know, you need to be the first person standing to run the mayor's office. And that is now uh, Tashara Jones. She'll be taking office in just a few weeks. Now, the other big news of the night is that the progressive effort led by Alderwoman Megan Greed did, in fact, flip the board of aldermen. We saw a few incumbents taken out and uh, a progressive favorite win an open seat. Here's what Alderwoman Megan Green said about that success last night. Progressives have been in a place for the last four years, um, in particular, where um, we have had, uh, we have been sort of vanished to committees that don't meet very often um, and and have not had a whole lot of power at the Board of Aldermen to be able to uh, pass a a progressive agenda. Um, But now with a majority of members of the Board of Aldermen identifying as progressive, um, it gives us power, it gives us a voting block um, to actually forward a progressive agenda. And that is Alderwoman Megan Green speaking of her successful effort, apparently, to flip the board. How big a sea change is this, Rachel? You know, I I would call it a working but fragile coalition. You certainly have more people there who would tend toward progressivism on some issues. But, you know, I don't expect it to be one of those things where they are going to hold together on every single issue. You know, you can identify probably... Seven, eight, nine, ten, who you think would would be, you know, together on on every single issue. And the question is, can they pull over the five others that they need to have a majority? And keep in mind, too, it doesn't change the process of how these committees chairs are chosen. It doesn't change the process of who is on these committees. Is it harder for board president Lewis Reed to make their lives miserable? Yes. 
but he still has a fair amount of power. Um, they were only able to move two progressive individuals up into being committee chair people. Hmm. That's decided on seniority. And remember, all of these new, these four new people are going to be at the bottom of the seniority chain. So there's not much power they have there. And it's still up to President Reid to assign other members to the committee and also to assign legislation to a committee. So if he wants to, he can stack a committee full of less progressive members, more establishment members, and then kick any legislation that he wants to those committees where it will die. Hmm. So do they have leverage if they can use the rules and, you know, use some procedural maneuvers and hold their coalition? Absolutely. But it is not a, you know, blank slate for we are going to push all of our progressive agenda out through the board of aldermen. Again, it makes it easier, but it is certainly not a panacea for their agenda. Uh, We asked our listeners on social media their reaction to this election. We asked them to keep it to five words or less. We were very impressed with how succinct they were able to be. (laughs) Um, On Twitter, Mitchell says, the future belongs to us. Chadley writes, we will regret this choice. Uh, Brad wrote on Facebook, I'm cautiously optimistic. And Mary wrote, yes, thank God, now what? (laughs) That's, I think, kind of the question we're all going to be watching closely. We also got an email from Jocelyn. She writes, as a team of rivals solution. Do you see Jones appointing Spencer to the open city treasurer position? Rachel Lippman, thoughts on that? Um, I would doubt it. And I don't really know how team of rivals that would be. Remember, this that's a separate legislative, quote unquote, county office. Now, could they pair up on things of interest to them, home financing, stabilization, use of the federal uh, coronavirus relief money that's coming in the half a billion dollars? There may be some potential there, but that is a siloed separate executive branch from how we think of, of City Hall. It's an office that exists because the city is its own county. And frankly, I'd be surprised if to charge Jones wanted to extend that olive branch. I, I I think I would be as well. She says she has thought about and considered who she will appoint. It's, it's, a, it's a quirk of the office that she gets to appoint her successor as treasurer, and that person will serve until 2024. So they come in with quite an advantage. Interesting. Well, we're going to have to keep an eye on that. And as there we is, will. <laughs> yes, yeah, so much else to keep an eye on now. There's going to be a lot happening in the city in the next couple of weeks. It's never a boring job. You are going to be busy. Well, St. Louis Public Radio reporter Rachel Lipman, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure, Sarah. Thank you. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.